A reading from the book of Luke. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his hands. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? God, thanks for this season of remembering the birth of your son. Thanks for the pause in the midst of services to help us slow down from the busyness long enough to really embrace what that means for us and what that means for our world. And God, as we lead into the message portion of this morning, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see who this person of Jesus is. In your name we pray, amen. So earlier during the greeting time, Nick asked you to share your favorite traditions, your favorite Christmas traditions. So I thought it would be interesting to find the top 10 Christmas traditions in America. So I did what any good scientist does, and I went to Google and typed in top 10 Christmas traditions. So here's what I have. This is like the David Letterman edition of top 10. Number 10, Christmas caroling. Number nine, sending greeting cards. Number eight, shopping. Number seven, going to the movies. Number six, attending Christmas parties. Number five, drinking eggnog. Four, baking cookies. Three, hanging stockings. Two, putting up Christmas lights. And the number one top American Christmas tradition is putting up a Christmas tree. Did you ever stop to think about where all these traditions come from? I know a lot of you were sharing maybe family traditions that came that have kind of been passed down from generation to generation. Our family tradition has to do with shoe fly pie. Does anybody in here know what shoe fly pie is? Oh, excellent. Some co-Pennsylvania Dutch folks. Shoe fly pie is a pile of molasses and sugar and flour poured into a pie crust to a bunch of gooey deliciousness. It's pretty fantastic. 
But you know, outside the family traditions we have, we all have kind of these cultural traditions, that many of which were listed in that top 10. And I went back and did a little bit of studying to figure out where did all of those traditions come from? And I found out a majority of them were either started or restarted during the Victorian era, which was about 100 years ago. And what started out as kind of this humble attempt to find ways to come together as family and celebrate the season started to turn a little bit. When the press got involved, they thought that they could help make um, the season brighter for other people by sharing some of the stories that came out of Christmas. And what happened, what the unintentional consequence of that was, was it began to sentimentalize Christmas. Not just the Christmas that we talk about where um, it's the cultural Christmas of celebration, but it also actually started to sentimentalize the whole story of Jesus. And then business owners got in on the deal because they realized that the sentimentalization was working and that there was a potential profit for them. And so now in 2016, Christmas is actually the time of year that brings in the amount of money that we as a nation need to survive for the rest of the year. In fact, I just read yesterday that on average, we spend $950 per person on Christmas. That's pretty mind-boggling. It also, as I've been thinking about it the last couple weeks, feels really empty. I get caught up in it, I mark the traditions off my list, but it seems like there's gotta be something more. Even when I'm reading these passages that we're going over leading into the story of Jesus, there's something that's missing, there's, there's an emptiness to it. I wanna give us time this morning to think about that emptiness, and I wanna suggest that the passage that Virgil read actually addresses some of that in two ways. It gives us a glimpse of God entering the world as the king who establishes his kingdom, and that king comes to turn the world upside down. Before we get into that, though, let me backtrack a little bit. We're in the third week of our Advent series called Beginnings. We're looking at the first two passages of Luke um, and the stories leading up to the birth of Jesus. Two weeks ago, Larry told us about um, Elizabeth and Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest or was a priest um, who had you know, a position of authority. He and his wife had tried for years and years and years to conceive a child and, and Elizabeth wasn't able to conceive. Um, and so they gave up. They got to the age where they could know she could no longer have kids. They were now old in age. One day Zechariah went to the temple. He was praying to God um, and this angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, God has heard your prayers. God fulfills his promises. Elizabeth is going to have a son, near to name him John. Larry told the story um, and had us imagine what it must have been like for Zechariah to go home to his elderly wife and say, hey, so tonight when we go to bed, we're gonna make a baby. But God fulfills his promises. And so um, sure enough, Elizabeth conceived. About six months into her pregnancy, the same angel, Gabriel, appeared to a young virgin girl named Mary. Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Uh, that time had not come yet. She was a young virgin. And the angel appeared to her and said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. You are going to birth the Son of God. Now Mary reacted with faith and with belief 
and stepped into that situation and said, God, I, you know, what, what God says, I will believe, let it be so. So that kind of brings us to where we are today. We've got Elizabeth's pregnant, Mary's just been told that she's going to become pregnant, um, and that brings us to our passage in Luke 1, 39 through 56. Virgil just read it during the candle lighting, but I'm going to have us listen to it again, and here's why. When we read the Christmas story, we read it through our own lens. We read it through our white, middle-class, American lens. We read it from a position of power and authority. Yet this passage was actually written for the poor and the marginalized. And so I want to have us watch it. We're going to play a video here in a minute. But I want us to think about what it must be like for this story when you're listening to it through the lens of the poor. The three women in our video are from Open Door Ministries. Open Door is an urban ministry that uh, Waterstone partners with. They work with the poor and low-income families in inner-city Denver. Um, these three gals have gone through the various programs at Open Door and agreed to help us out. So let's listen to our passage again. Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the fresh away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. According to the promises he made to our ancestors. To Abraham and to his descendants forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. Our passage this morning has two parts to it, so we're going to walk through both of those separately. The first is the story of Mary and Elizabeth, and it really talks about the king breaking into the world. 
And then the second part is known as Mary's song or the Magnificat. And it's really about how that king then comes and turns everything upside down. Let me first catch you up to our story. So we left off. The angel appeared to Mary, told her that she was going to have God's son. Mary immediately um, packed her bags and left because the other thing the angel told her was that her relative Elizabeth was also pregnant. So imagine Mary finally realizes that there's one person in the world that may be able to understand how she's feeling, that this unimaginable thing just happened to her and that God's promise was for this miraculous conception to happen. So she packs up and she leaves right away. We assume that the moment that the angel came to visit with Mary, she became pregnant, but that's not what the text says. So we're not sure if she's pregnant now or if she becomes pregnant later, Um, but what we know is that she believes in the promise of God and she leaves. The trek from where she is to Nazareth to where Elizabeth and Zechariah live in Judah is about 80 to 100 miles. Again, we conjure up this idea or this image of Mary making this journey all by herself, and it's a couple miles away. It's long. It's about four to five days. And she probably didn't make that trip by herself. Joseph probably arranged for her to go with a caravan, and they probably traveled together. But Joseph either went partway and returned or didn't go at all because he would have had to take care of things um, and make a living for them. So here, Mary goes on this, on this adventure. She goes to visit her relative. And when she first reaches where Elizabeth is, she greets her. Now, one side note about the location of Elizabeth. She, they lived in the town of Judah, but at this point in time, we're out on the hillside. It says that in our passage. It mentions the hillside of Judah. And they're telling us that because imagine, here's Elizabeth, who's a senior, who's elderly, and now great with child. She was trying to avoid all of the attention that would come to seeing a senior woman be pregnant. So Mary greeted her out on the hillside. And there's a nuance here that we don't get because we don't do some of this in the way that we greet each other. But at that time, a greeting was all about power and position. The person with the lower power was to initially greet the person with the greater power. In this case, Elizabeth had the greater power for several reasons. She was older. She was um, the wife of a priest. She was from the line of Aaron. And she was pregnant. You know, for so many years, Elizabeth was on the bottom of the social structure because she wasn't able to have a child. All of a sudden, she's higher because she's pregnant. So Mary, rightfully so, yells out to Elizabeth and gives her a greeting. At that moment, something amazing happens that we read over. It says that the baby in Elizabeth's womb jumped for joy. Now I think we read over that because if you've ever been pregnant or your wife's been pregnant or you know someone that's been pregnant, you know that it's very common at six months that that baby's pretty active. But there's something different about the way that this motion is described. It's as if uh, the baby in the womb is reacting to the mere voice of Mary and at that moment the Holy Spirit indwells Elizabeth and her eyes are opened to the miraculous thing that's happening. Luke 1, 42 through 45 says this, in a loud voice she exclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. 
Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. There are two things I want us to pay attention to in this passage, and the first is this. Elizabeth affirmed Mary, not for Mary to feel better about herself, not so that she would feel you know, good, but think about it. Elizabeth has no clue that Mary's pregnant, and we don't even know if she's pregnant yet. All we know is the angel told her that she was going to be pregnant. But then Elizabeth has this Holy Spirit moment where she's like, oh my gosh, you're carrying this child. Something happened in that moment where Elizabeth was able to see. Mary didn't send her a letter to tell her about her visit. She didn't shoot a quick text. They didn't FaceTime ahead of time. There's no way that Elizabeth would have known. So in Elizabeth. Saying that out loud to Mary, she's affirming the very thing that the angel told Mary. And it brought a deeper level of faith to Mary and a recognition of who she was about to bear. And that's the second thing we need to notice. In fact, that's the most important thing we need to notice about this part of the passage. We read over this and we read about this sweet baby that's about to be born. We read it and we see these two women that have had these miraculous conceptions who are standing together, joyful over about, uh, about what's about to happen. But what we miss is the key word in this passage, and it's when Mary refers to that baby as Lord. That's the first time in the Gospel of Luke that that word is used. And you need to know that it refers to two aspects of Jesus. It refers to him as God and it refers to him as king. This passage isn't about a sweet little baby entering the world. It's about the king of the universe, the creator, the Messiah, breaking into the world, establishing his kingdom, and getting ready to turn everything upside down. Elizabeth's joy is because the hoped for and the promised Messiah is about to arrive. The very one that Abraham and David spoke of for thousands of years is about to be here in flesh and bones. We can't miss the fact that Christmas is about the king entering the world and establishing his kingdom. So what's that mean for us? I want to suggest three things. It means we need to spend less time sentimentalizing the baby and more time celebrating the king. It means we need to move away from the Christmas story of a sweet infant who's supposed to bring us lives of happiness, safety, and privilege, and move towards the story of a king who demands our sacrifice and our allegiance. It means we need to recognize that Jesus is coming into the world to rule and reign over all, He's going to make the world what it's supposed to be because he's the one that created it in the first place. This baby came with the promise of establishing his kingdom and returning things back to the way they were intended to be, which is a complete upturning of everything we know. That takes us to the second part of our passage. And you'll notice that what happens is there's a, there's a shift in literary form. So the beginning, where Mary and Elizabeth are talking to each other, that's a narrative. This next part, Mary's song, is a poem. And Luke used the poem on purpose. It's because it's a form called 
operatic aria. David Garland gives us this definition. An aria allows the composer to stop the action at any point so that through a poetic and musical development exceeding the possibilities of ordinary life, a deeper awareness of what is happening can be achieved. Luke wants us to pay attention to this part of the passage because he wants us to hear the most important thing, and it's this. I'm the other one, <laughs> the other this. It's that God is coming to bring his king, to fulfill his kingdom, and to flip the world upside down. Let's look at what God has done for Mary in Luke 1, 46 through 49, and we'll begin to see how he's going to turn this world upside down. He starts with her. It says this, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. We need to understand who Mary is so that it makes sense, the meaning behind her glorifying and blessing God. Again, we conjure up this image of Mary. We make her like us. We make her similar to this picture that we're going to put on the screen, where for some reason she always tends to have blue. She has this angelic glow above her head. She has blue eyes. She has white skin. She looks similar to us, and we probably assume that her socioeconomic status may be a little bit lower than ours, but it's pretty close. The true Mary of Nazareth looks more like this. She probably had olive skin, black hair, dark eyes. She was 13 to 14 years old. She was a poor Jewish girl. In our passage, when she refers to herself as a humble servant, she's giving us a glimpse into her current social status. We've got an image that shows what that social structure looked at, looked like during this time. And it puts God, or it puts um, the ruler up on top. And then you can see as you go down, you have the governing class, the retainers and priests, the merchants, and then towards the bottom, you have the peasants. That's where Mary sits. And not only does she sit in that peasant section, she sits at the bottom of the peasant session, section because of several things about her. One is that she's female. One is that she's young, she's poor, and nobody knows who she is. Oh, and as a side note, she's an unwed pregnant teen, or about to be. Mary is way down on the totem pole here. So when we look at that beginning of that, her song, and she talks about blessing God, she's saying, oh my gosh, you took somebody like me, a humble servant, and you flipped this picture upside down and put me in a place where I'm higher because I'm about to birth your son. That's unimaginable. Not only does, is that the message for Mary, that God turns Mary's world upside down, but it's also the message for us. In the poem starting at verse 50 through 55, the tone shifts. Mary goes from talking in the first person singular to the first person plural. So at the beginning, she's talking about how God has turned her world upside down. He, at this part, she's talking about I as a part of we. That God's turning our world upside down. 
And he's not doing it in the past. He's about to do it in the future. It says this, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from the thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised for our ancestors. Jesus took, when Jesus entered the world, and the promise of flipping it upside down, he's talking about taking the, those that are in the high spots and those who are in the low spots and flipping it. He's talking about taking the rich and taking the poor and flipping it. He's talking about taking the prideful and taking the humble and flipping it. David Garland has a great quote that speaks to this and is pretty convicting. It says this, The pregnant Mary anticipates Christ's birth with some fiery political theology. Rulers tossed from thrones, the haughty humbled, the rich made bankrupt, the lowly exalted and the hungry fed. These words from Jesus' mother should keep this baby from simply being gazed upon and adored. They create disturbing ripples that rock the placid waters of the comfortable who think all is right with the world, with God safely tucked away in heaven and oblivious to injustice on earth. Through Mary, we hear the insistent voice of the marginalized ringing out a challenge from on high to those entrenched in their seemingly impregnable seats of temporal power. Ouch. Mary's song is all about God coming into the world as the king, establishing his kingdom, and flipping things upside down. That messes with us. That messes with me. The past couple weeks have really messed with my head. You know, I was thinking about this. Um, I love the poor. I spent a year and a half in inner city Philadelphia, living with the poor, working with the marginalized. We give our time and our money to work with the poor at Open Door Ministry. I love to engage the homeless when I'm in downtown Denver or when I run into the lady at Starbucks that I know is homeless here locally. I like to sit with people when they're grieving and when they're having a hard time and when they're hurting. I have a heart for the marginalized. But I really like my position of authority and power and affluency. I like that I can buy my kids whatever Christmas gift they want. I want to be able to buy them what they want. I like to be known, and I like others to know me. I like to be able to do what I want when I want to do it. I like to be able to tell you that I have a picture on my phone of me and Marcus Mumford of the Mumford and Sons because we had lunch and went four-wheeling together. I like that power of that position of authority and position and affluence that we all have. The problem is, is that when I read this passage, Jesus is saying he's coming and he's gonna flip all that upside down. 
he doesn't care what picture I have on my phone of the lead singer. What he cares about is Cece from Open Door Ministries, who's homeless, living on the streets, and just became pregnant. Those are the people he wants me to engage with. But the problem is, is that I'm having to struggle between whether I really believe in his kingdom or whether I want to hold on to my own. And that makes all the difference at Christmas time. My guess is that I'm not the only one wrestling with this passage. Because when we read this, we are the ones sitting at the top. So I want to give us a couple applications and implications. The first is this. Some of us in this room, some of you in this room, may have a place to sleep. You may not live on the streets. But there is some real hurt and brokenness going on in your life. I think this morning's message for you may be one where you listen through the ears of the marginalized. Whether you've recently lost your job or your home, you're struggling with an addiction, you're grieving the loss of a spouse, a child, or a parent, you're angry about your singleness, you're barely holding on to your marriage, you're experiencing some side sort of extreme physical pain, or you're grieving the loss of the dreams you had for someone you love, Jesus came for you. He came to be the voice for the voiceless. He came to be the hope for the hopeless. That baby king as the king who's going to turn everything upside down. Don't lose hope. He's still here. For most of us in this room, we're the ones that are the powerful. We have everything we need. And honestly, if you think about it, when we have everything we need, it makes it really hard to need Jesus. We sit at the seat of power and authority, and we get to look down on everybody else. My challenge for you and for me, for us, is to really engage this passage over the next couple weeks, to pick it up and read it every day until Christmas, not through our lenses of suburban Littleton, but by putting ourselves in the shoes of the poor and marginalized and reading it through that lens. Trying to wrestle through what God calls us to do when we're in a position of power and authority and what we're supposed to do with that as we engage with the poor and the marginalized. To help us take one little step towards that, I'm going to read a story from our Justice in Action class. Justice in Action is a class that walks us through um, kind of what, what it looks like across the world for those who are, in, um, who are poor, marginalized, and oppressed. I'm going to read this, this story to you, and while I do it, we're going to put an image up on the screen that I want you to think about. It's an upside-down map. Have you ever thought about the fact that we make our maps so that we're on top? Whoever said that America should be at the top of the globe? 
But I don't want you to just focus on the geographical flipping of this map. I want you to really try to visualize what it would be like if things were flipped and we lived in a third world country. Let me read this to us. Dreaming Upside Down by Tom Peterson. I dreamed the other night that all the maps in the world had been turned upside down. Library atlases, road maps of Cincinnati, wall-sized maps in the war rooms of the great nations. Even antique maps with such inscriptions as here be dragons were flipped over. We had been, nor what was north was south, east was west, like a glob of melting vanilla ice cream, Antarctica now capped schoolroom globes. In my dream, a cloud of anxieties closed around me. The United States was now at the bottom. Would we have to stand upside down, causing the blood to rush to our heads? Would we need suction cup shoes to stay on the planet, and would autumn leaves fall up? No, I remembered an apple once bopped Newton on the head. No, no, no need to worry about these things. Other things troubled me more. Now that we're at the bottom, would our resources and labor be exploited by the new top? Would African, Asian, and Latin American nations structure world trade to their advantage? Would my neighbors and I have $2 a day seasonal jobs on peach and strawberry plantations? Would the women and children work from dusk to dawn to scratch survival from the earth of California and Virginia? Would the fruit we picked be shipped from New Orleans and New York for children in Thailand and Ethiopia to hurriedly eat with their cereal so they wouldn't miss the school bus? Would our children then spend the morning not in school but fetching water two miles away and the afternoon gathering wood for heating and cooking? Would a small ruling class in this country send their daughters and sons to universities in Cairo and Buenos Aires? Would our economy be dependent upon the goodwill of whims of, say, Brazil? Would Brazil send warplanes and guns to Washington, D.C. to assure our willingness to pick apples and tobacco for export while our children went hungry? Would Brazil and Vietnam fight their wars with our sons in our country? Would we consider revolution? If we did revolt, would the Filipino government plot to put their favorite U.S. general in power and then uphold him with military aid? Would we work in sweatshops manufacturing radios for the Chinese? Would our oil be shipped in tankers to Southeast Asia to run their cars, air conditioning, and microwave ovens while most of our towns didn't have electricity? Would top-of-the-world religious leaders call us stubborn pagans upon whom God's judgment had fallen, causing our misery? Would they proclaim from opulent pulpits that if we simply turned to God, our needs would be met? In my dream, I saw a child crying in Calcutta. Her parents wouldn't buy her any more video games until her birthday. I saw her mother drive to the supermarket and load her cart with frozen and junk food, vegetables, cheese, meat, and women's magazines. I also saw a mother in Houston baking bread in an earthen oven. She had been crying because there was no more beans for her family. One of her children listlessly watched her. He was a blonde boy, about six years old. He slowly turned his empty, haunting gaze toward me. At that point, I woke up with a gasp. I saw I was in my own bed, in my own house. It was just a dream. I drifted back to sleep thinking, it's all right. I'm still on top. Thank God. Christmas isn't about the sentimentality of the baby. 
It's not about the traditions. It's not about the money. It's not about filling up our own kingdoms. Christmas is about an infant who entered the world as the king, ushered in his kingdom, and promises to flip the whole world upside down. If that really happens, and he promises it will, maybe Christmas won't be so empty after all. Let's pray. God, your word is not always easy. And sometimes the simple answer is to read through it from our own perspectives, forgetting to listen to what the author meant and to think about the audience that it was first written to. God, in our passage this morning, thank you for taking us for a moment outside of our worlds and into the world of Mary. Thank you that she points us to Jesus, that he's the one that came into the world as the king, an infant king who ushered in his kingdom and who's going to turn the world upside down.